0: to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Matthew 5 and verse 43, this is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God for His word. Let's pray. Father, we come submitting ourselves to you now that through your word you might speak to and instruct our hearts. Lord, we need more than information. We need your all powerful word with the promise that it will not return void to till the hard soil of our hearts. Would you do what only you can do, Lord, through this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in this final, you have heard it said, but I say to you statement of Jesus in this sermon. He brings what is likely the most challenging explanation of the law's intent. Remember what he has been doing. He has been explaining the intent of the law, what, was, what, is, what is behind the law. Uh, He's been correcting misunderstandings or misinterpretations of the law that have been occurring from the religious leaders. But this explanation of the law is something that can surprise us even today, even though we're quite familiar with this verse, it's something that we're uh, accustomed to hearing since we are little children if we grew up in the church. But how is it good or righteous to love our enemies? How is it even possible to love our enemies this law of love, as we might call it, is what is behind all of God's law for mankind. This is what we've been building up to. This is, this is what un- lies under the entire law. If you want to understand God's law, you have to understand love. Our minds, by the way, are not wired that way. Our understanding of law in every context is not love. Very rarely do we see love. I mean, we joke in our house because, you know, I joked growing up that in my 20s, I spent those years apologizing to my parents because I began realizing how much of a knucklehead I was. And in in my 30s, I began thanking my parents because I realized all that they did for me now that I was changing diapers and, 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 and chasing little kids and so forth. And there is a sense that we do come to appreciate it. For the most part, though, when we see the police car, we slow down, whether we're speeding or not, and we get that pit in our stomach because we all feel guilty of the force or the heaviness of the law. It's very, very odd, except as believers to understand that love is what is behind God's law. It is out of love. That God calls us to honor and worship Him because He is all worthy and all supreme. It would be unloving for Him to do otherwise. He calls us because He is due such. It is out of love that God calls us not to steal and lie and covet our neighbors or their belongings because those acts are harmful to all involved. It is out of love. And the law of love is not a New Testament concept, although many of us may have heard that growing up. We may have heard people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. And that's incorrect. The law of love was there all along. We can look back in the Old Testament and see where it was. In Leviticus nineteen eighteen: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Micah 6 verse eight, "He's told you what is good to do justice, to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with your God." Deuteronomy 10:19, "Love the sojourner. Love the sojourner, the outsider, the refugee. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. We could read the entire prophets of Jonah, Hosea, to see these explicit examples of this lavish love for those who are in opposition to us. It is throughout the Old Testament. Of course, in the New Testament, it is expanded. It is clearer. In the person and, and work of Jesus, we understand it in a way that we never could have understood it from the Old Testament alone. And as we're seeing now in the Sermon on the Mount, but we could go to other places as well. First Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, But these, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Or Colossians three fourteen, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Romans 13, verse 8, O oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what Jesus is bringing us to in this corrective work, in this explanatory work of understanding what is the intent behind the law so that we might understand that the law isn't simply just a list of rules to keep or not keep, and we all know we haven't kept, so that we can understand what the intent is behind it. He shows us here that love is the source the means, and the goal. We have been saved from sin through the love of God that has been poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. And we demonstrate, as he says here, we demonstrate we are God's children by showing love to others, even to our enemies. And then we strive. It's the goal. We strive to love, yes, even our enemies, because this is how God has loved us. While we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us, and as we remember the love of God toward us, it should uh, God, toward us, it should motivate us, it shouldn't fill us with pride, it should motivate us to love others, to grow in that love, even our enemies. It should increase uh, uh, the thankfulness that 's in our hearts because we know this is not of ourselves it's not anything that we could do, as we 've already admitted it's not our instinct to love our enemies as we strive to love more, we will pray for those who oppose us that they might receive the mercy of Jesus that we have been recipients of. In the end, it is all about love. Now, let me say at the outset that this love here is described as a verb. It is an action. It's a command. So first and foremost, this love is a willful choice. It is not a warm and fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of us. We all are probably very aware that even when we want to feel something We cannot, our our feelings don't have switches. We can't just turn them on and off. I think we can take our thoughts captive and we can influence our uh, emotions. uh, But but emotions, we, we don't have switches for those. Sometimes we wish we did. Sometimes we wish we could feel warm and fuzzy or that we could turn off anger or whatever. But we have to fight those and work with those in different ways. And so this isn't a command to wait for a feeling. It is a command to love in action, to take a step forward in that direction. And often the warmth does follow. Uh, When we were doing our our Sunday school class on uh, assurance, one of the things that uh, I mentioned there is an antidote for doubt is thankfulness. It's one of the ways that I fight doubt is by confessing thankfulness to God. Another antidote to maybe not just doubt but just despondency is to serve. I would, I would prescribe that to any of you. If you're struggling with, you know, I just don't feel it today, find somebody to serve. Uh, it's not a guarantee. I think it's more proverbial than anything. But it, it, the, the feelings do often follow when we obey and when we follow in that direction. Now, second, love isn't a nebulous idea of whatever feels good. That's the way the world addresses love. Whatever feels good, it's whatever way the wind blows, whatever sounds good today. Love is always others-oriented and abides by the truth. Love is always others-oriented and abides by the truth. We cannot call something love that goes against righteousness. Yet, we should not condemn unrighteousness with hateful words or actions and try and call it love. Love is kindness and truth perfectly joined together. Now, generally speaking, we Presbyterians are much better at the truth part than we are at the kindness part. And I feel like I can say that now. I've been a Presbyterian long enough. You know, I can say bad things about my family, but you can't. You know, I can say something critical of my mama, but you better not. So I feel like I can say something critical. I've been Presbyterian long enough now that I think we do better at the truth part than we do the kindness part. So what is kindness? Well, kindness isn't a nebulous idea either. It means something. Kindness is doing good toward and for others. It's what we see in Philippians 2, considering others more important than ourselves. A lot of times I think we call things love because it feels warm and fuzzy, but it isn't others-oriented or for their good. But it appears warm and fuzzy, and so we call it love. Love is always others-oriented and for their good. Ephesians 4, kindness is linked with tender-heartedness and forgiveness. When was the last time that you prayed for a tender heart? When was the last time you thought about your actions or your words in a moment and thought, I want to speak with tenderness. I want to be tender-hearted in this moment. We don't think about it much. But this means that our acts of love ought to have a tenderness about them, a kindness. It also means that we forgive, that we don't keep a record of wrong. This, this we can see, I think, especially in our familial relationships uh, of where we, we tend to, to not do these things. We tend to be the least tender with those we are closest to. We tend to be the least forgiving sometimes, keeping the record of wrongs. We hear those things come back. So to be clear, then, the use of the word love in this passage is an action that we are called to that is for the benefit of others first, not for ourselves first, that is in accordance with the truth, but is tender and kind. Quite simply, it is patient and kind. It doesn't envy nor boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't, uh, it's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. So looking now at verse 43, we read, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now here Jesus is quoting what I read from earlier from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So it's not Jesus who's leaving out or adding to. He is simply quoting the way the teachers of his day had Modified the law. We've seen them doing this already, right? With the oaths. Remember how they were uh, slicing things up, carving these things up, and uh, taking away and adding to. Well, here they're doing the same thing. Because nowhere in the law are we commanded to hate our enemies. Now, some of you might think of imprecatory psalms. You might think of other passages where hate is spoken of. And I will say that there is a righteous hatred, just like there is a righteous anger. A righteous hatred is is a hatred against evil. We are to hate evil. None of us should love evil. Um, but just like with righteous anger, we, we rarely get righteous hatred right. Most of the time, even when we think our, right, our anger is righteousness, we can all admit that it's, it's all twisted and warped up with selfish desires and, and other things. It, it's, it's, you know, is it ever pure? The same is true with hatred. We need to be careful. So we have to be careful to understand we can hate evil but we should never misappropriate that towards a person who's been created in the image of God. So, to paraphrase it simply, we hate evil and we love people. That's the distinction. Something else that may not be explicitly clear right away is a proper understanding of our neighbor. Now, Jesus does address this some, that he, he's helping them begin to see that your neighbor isn't just the person who lives next door. He's going to do this uh, more comprehensively in the parable of the Good Samaritan when we get to that. But who is our neighbor? Again, quite simply, we could say whoever God brings across our path. Whoever God brings across our path, that's our neighbor. The people of Jesus' day, again, they were trying to carve this up to make it work for their own benefit so that, in essence, just like with the promises, they could keep on sinning but call it righteousness. They could say, like the rich young ruler, I've kept all the law and feel good about themselves. But they only wanted to love other Jews or other people from their village or other people who looked like them, talked like them, thought like them, or acted like them. But as Jesus will soon uncover in this message, even unbelievers do this. So the law of God was being distorted, parts were being left out, other parts added in to make people feel good about themselves while they were in their sin. And so Jesus responds in verse forty-four But I say to you, Love your neighbor or love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So right away we see that Jesus is Eastern and not Western. <laughs> Because our Western minds expect something much more rational, like, you know, folks, come on, you know, you're leaving some parts out, you're adding some other parts in. It's really more broad than that. You know, some kind of real clear explanation. Jesus just swings for the fence, right? He drives it out of the park. Love your enemies. Like, there's, there's no question. There's, there's really no statement. We're all left dumbfounded by this. It just smacks us in the face. Getting our heads around this is still difficult for us even in this day. It is not our natural response to love those who are opposed to us, who hurt us, who take from us, and who outrightly hate us. Such people do not stir up warm and fuzzy feelings in our hearts. The Feelings are more hot and sharp <laughs> than they are warm and fuzzy, and we want to respond in a similar fashion. But Jesus commands us to love them, to act out kindness and truth with tenderness that forgives. And in such others-oriented actions, there may be different outcomes. Romans 12 speaks of one. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but recently I said, you know, I've always had trouble with the burning coals thing and always feels like that's an act of evil. But we have to note that the command is not to heap burning coals on people's head. The command is to do a kind act, to give a thirsty person something to drink, to give a hungry person something to eat. The burning coals is the judgment that they themselves feel from what has been revealed by God to them through the created order. So it becomes judgment to them. We aren't judging them in in God's place. We're called to this act of kindness. So judgment is one of the outcomes that can result from loving our enemies. But another one, I think more desirable, is repentance. Romans 2, 4, Paul asks the question, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is designed this way, to lead us to repentance. So our acts of love as we live as our Heavenly Father and love as our Heavenly Father, might they be used then by Him to lead others to repentance? Of course, our responsibility is not the outcome. We're not in charge of that. We don't really get a say in that. Our responsibility is to obey the call to love everyone. People like us people not like us, people who are friendly and people who are unfriendly, our friends and our enemies. Jesus then adds that we're to pray for them as well. Pray for those who persecute you. Another command that isn't intuitive to our humanness unless we think of imprecatory prayers, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, We tend to pray for our loved ones, people we care about, people we like. We pray for good things for them, but our enemies, those who harm us, those who hurt us, those who take from us. And yet praying for our enemies is an expression of the call to love them. We may never sense feelings of fondness for those who do us wrong, but we act with love for their sake, serving them by praying for them, praying that their eyes may be open, praying that their hearts might be softened, pray that they would repent, and if they're unbelievers, pray that they would believe pray for their good. And when we demonstrate love and pray for these, our enemies, Jesus says that it shows we are sons of the Father who is in heaven. And we've talked about before the idea of, of, of a heavenly Father, that, that Jesus is coming and speaking. This is, It's not foreign to the Old Testament, but it's not common. This is not the way people in the days of Jesus were accustomed to hearing about God in heaven. And so this was still a very new idea. So was the idea of sonship, that we are actually sons adopted uh, of our heavenly father. I think the intimacy of such a relationship is still hard for us to grasp at times. It's one of the reasons why I love the Tim Keller quote, where he says, the only person who dares wake up a a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. I still can't grasp that. And then I read 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. If then we are so loved that He has made us His sons, then we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, because He has done that toward us, and that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The wording in English, at least in the ESV, so that you may be sons, can be confusing to us. We might think somehow this is meritorious. It is not what Jesus is suggesting. We know that from other parts of this sermon or other teachings of His or other passages in Scripture. But rather, the love is the proof that we are sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. It demonstrates we belong. Who else could love like this but God and His children who want to be like their Heavenly Father? Jesus then gives an example of the Heavenly Father's love for all. He makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the evil and the good and on the just, on the unjust. We call this God's common grace, common in that rain and sun. Go to everyone. It doesn't just, you know, fall on the faithful. These things that are necessary for life, that are required for us to go on living and breathing, He gives to all. He gives commonly in love, not only toward all mankind, but toward all creation. Beasts included, as we read in Psalm 145 this morning. The common grace is not saving grace, but it is a kindness that is designed to lead us to repentance, to see the glory and the goodness of God in creation and seek Him. And If we don't respond this way to His common grace, then the rain and the sun and all good gifts that come from Him become our judgment in the end, because they are proof then that we are without excuse. So if God shows his love for the world in this way, it accomplishes at least two things. First, what I just mentioned, that we are without excuse. So for unbelievers, according to Romans 1, though they have seen and made, been made aware of who God is and his attributes through creation, it says that we are then without excuse, so it becomes judgment. But second, it shows us who have been saved, his children, that it is all grace. We've earned no part of it. We have no leg to stand on. Therefore, we are to love our enemies. Love in the same way, not distinguishing between the people we like and the people we don't like, the people who are easy to love and the people who aren't, the folks who are like us from those who are different, or any other version of those people. We are simply called to love as the Father loves. To help us understand this, what He means, I think in part because Jesus knows the little Pharisee is going to come climbing up out of our hearts any minute now and figure out to, how to do to this exactly what the Pharisees have been doing to, to the law, he, he gives us these examples to show us very clearly what love is and what love isn't. The first example is if we love those who love us. And he says, in essence, there's no reward in this. It's transactional. Every person has gotten their earnings. It is reciprocal. Even the tax collectors do this. Now, tax collectors, we've talked about them before. They were the ones who were most easily hated in the culture. We don't miss the irony here that Matthew, writing this gospel, is himself a tax collector, and and yet he includes this. But the people who were collecting taxes for the Romans were hated because the Romans were an invading and now an occupying force, and it felt like theft for them to take their money and send it back to Rome. And on top of that, there were Jews who were employed by the Romans. These were even more hated. Matthew would have been one of these because it felt treasonous for these Jews to partner with the Romans to collect money to go to Rome. On top of that, tax collectors were known to extort even more than they were required to take to make themselves rich off the backs of their neighbors. And so they were the bottom of the barrel. They were the ones that would have had all kinds of names called on them. And Jesus says, even they love those who love them. There's no reward in this. The second example is about greeting our brothers. I think this is kind of the, the public love, the kind of love we show in the hardware store, if you want to call it love, uh, or the DMV where we greet people. Fine. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Sometimes we do this at church on Sunday mornings. We don't ever, you know, really get into conversations with people. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, fine. How are you? We put our smile on. I'm talking in my southern accent because that's how we do it in the south. But, you know, whatever the case, we, we can fall into these traps very easily. And Jesus says, this is no more than anyone else does. Gentiles do this another moniker for those who were unliked now this is the New Testament's written in Greek but the the Hebrew word for Gentile is gohim and gohim originally meant other nations nations outside of the nation of Israel but over time the meaning changed and shifted it became uh, it came to mean outsider eventually it came to mean those who were unclean and then even to today, it's synonymous with the word pig. It's an insult. Even today, in Hebrew, it is still an insult to be used this way. Not always an insult, but it can be used as an insult. So what seems to be happening here in terms of what Jesus is suggesting, that even those who seem like they're the bottom of the barrel, even the people who we might most uh, you know, c- consider the most unrighteous people, the, the, the pigs and the tax collectors, even they do these things. So what then is love? What does it look like? Jesus seems to be suggesting here that true love involves some kind of sacrifice, some kind of payment, some kind of giving of ourselves, that we spend our very selves, our time and energy, our possessions and our money, our power and our rights, even our dignity or our reputation, that we give these up, we spend them for the benefit of someone else. That is what love looks like. It is not just a warm feeling, but it's a a sacrificial act of kindness. All of us know what it is when we see it, when we receive it. We all recognize it. Even if we don't want to call it love, we recognize it for what it it is. A few weekends ago, Leslie and I got away uh, for a weekend, and there was one activity that I wanted to do, and I knew that she would probably not have much interest in it at all. But I let her know this one activity, and you know what? she went enthusiastically. She even enjoyed it. Why? Because she loves me. I don't know why she loves me. <laughs> I visited somebody in the hospital this week, got turned around, finally saw an employee and asked for directions. And this employee took me, I, was, I wasn't even on the right floor, the Employee took up an elevator, down all these halls and corridors, probably spent, you know, five or six minutes taking me right to where I needed to go. And when I thanked them, they, they told me they were on break. Uh, you know, what a sacrificial act. They could have just said, oh, it's that away, way like we experience in most department stores. But no, they took me exactly where I needed to go. I have no idea why. Not too long ago, I foolishly attempted another plumbing project. <laughs> Those who know me laughed. Um, I messed it up, made it worse than it was. I called someone in church for advice. I won't name him because he wouldn't want me to. But not only did he give me advice, he came in his truck, and he got under my sink, and he fixed my mistake. He gave up his time. He gave up his energy. He gave up his gas money. And he made me feel a little bit better about the whole situation by telling me the the builder put it in wrong anyway. (laughs) What an act of love, right? We know it when we see it. So it's not hard for us to grasp what it is to look like. Yet may we not become like the Pharisees of Jesus' day and love only in speech or try to call our acts loving when the recipient isn't benefited in any way or there is no sacrifice. We can call things love all day long. It doesn't make it love. True love requires spending, even if it is nothing more than our time or our energy. If it costs us nothing... We have to ask if it's truly love. The capstone statement, the one that we've been building, that we've peeked at it before, we, you know, we, we know what's coming, verse 48. This is the capstone statement of this entire section of the sermon that we've been in for weeks now, but particularly today. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And for me, it immediately brings to my mind the psalm that says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, Psalm 24. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is that? (laughs) Jesus. I mean, that's it. None of us. None of us have done this. We might think of Leviticus 11:45. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The standard is set, it's not being lowered. And yet how often when we think of holiness or righteousness or perfection do we actually think of love? I don't know you. I I usually don't. I think of rule following. I think of doing things right, of measuring up, of being or looking righteous. Yet as we have seen from Romans, love is the fulfillment of the law. Even though we might read the command about Perfection, we recognize our inability to keep it theologically. We know the category here, right? Jesus, has, He's our righteousness. He, he, he came, He lived in our place, He obeyed the law in our place. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. That is true. But we cannot dismiss that this is an exhortation. You shall be. Yet the striving that Jesus lays out here is not in rule keeping, but is in growing in love. Love is an action but it's not a cold, heartless, theologically precise action. By its definition, love is from the heart. It is a sincere and true heart that aligns truth and kindness together in action. So my point is is that we must not simply try and explain this away. We need to feel the weight of this and the glory of this statement that is both a command and has a hint of a promise. The command is where to grow, toward maturity, to completion. That's one of the ways this word can be translated. Perfection can also be translated completion. Growth is essential. None of us have arrived. We've all got room to grow. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So there's growth. That's what this is going to look like. Now, I often say certain characteristics are a hallmark of a Christian. The one I probably say the most is humility. Humility is a hallmark of the Christian. Uh, You know, a proud Christian is an oxymoron that doesn't exist. But I think I can safely say that the ultimate hallmark of a person who's trusting in Christ is love. The hallmark of the Christian is love. I mean, we could go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, read the, read the whole chapter. We could look at Matthew twenty two thirty seven, where Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We could read all of 1 John. We could read the words of Jesus in John, uh, John's Gospel, 1335. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It is all about love. And all of us <clears throat> have nearly countless opportunities to love other people. Almost every waking moment of every day. I mean, it's, it's, if we're awake, there's usually an opportunity in front of us. But the statement of Jesus that is a command, also shines forward to a promise. Now, in the immediate context, it is clearly a command that he's exhorting us to. But like types and prophecies in the Old Testament, we who are on this side of the cross can look back and see that there is a shadow of a promise here. We shall be perfect in Christ Jesus through faith. It is a perfection that we know we cannot achieve. We've all transgressed God's holy law. There's no, there's no going back and rewriting what we've already done. And even if we were forgiven all of our transgressions, it doesn't, it doesn't leave our bank account with anything in it. Our bank account would still be zero. We have no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is called filthy rags that should be thrown away. Yet Jesus has done for us what we were unable to do in that He both forgives our debts... And he has lived the perfect life in our place, crediting us with his righteousness. So the only way that we can be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect is in and through the work of Jesus. And this is where and how we find our rest. That the work is finished. We are now called children of God. And so we are. But because we are his children... We will love like Him. We will want to be like our Heavenly Father. We will want to live and love as He has loved us. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth, let's pray, Father. We we don't love as as you have loved us. We we know that no one has to tell us that. We know our selfishness. We know how we direct our lives, how we order our lives, how we structure things. It's all about us. And yet, as your children, we seeing this deficiency, long to be like you because we see this incredible love that has been poured out upon us and we want to love like you love lord so would you help us do that would you help us to see that love is the fulfillment of the law that 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 to grow in this love is to fulfill the law lord we we can't even comprehend that but would you help us to to grasp that this is this is what it's all about this is what it all comes down to that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as we Can't do this in our own power. Can't do this in our own strength. We have failed. We will fail. We thank you for Christ who has done this perfectly for us, Lord. But as your children, that we may be known as sons of our heavenly Father, would you help us grow in love? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. And